I invite you to find Luke chapter 10, our text today, and I want to speak to you in a message entitled, God's Harvest Field. We're going to consider a rather long passage of scripture together. We'll look at the first two-thirds of it here in just a moment, and then look at the last part uh, toward the end of the message. As we've gone through our study in the Gospel of Luke, we've focused on the kingdom of God. We've been thinking about what the kingdom of God is, and I've defined it as the overarching rule and reign of God over all things. The kingdom of God is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven in the New Testament. Uh, the expression the kingdom of God is not specifically found in the Old Testament, but the concept of it certainly is, because God is presented as the king who is the king over his people, over his chosen people. The emphasis of the prophets was to look forward to the day when God's rule would be established and fully experienced eternally. So the focus is on the everlasting duration of God's kingdom as well as how it applies as a present reality in the lives of the disciples of Jesus. We long for the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom in the return of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, the good news of the kingdom of God was central to the ministry and the message of Jesus. There are 39 references to the kingdom in Luke's gospel. And Jesus said early on in Luke chapter 4, in verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. From the passage before us today, I want us to focus on God's harvest field, our responsibilities in God's harvest field, as well as the privileges that go along with it. I heard Brad Briscoe with uh, the North American Mission Board make this statement this week. He said, people think of the church as a vendor of religious goods and services, and we try to attract people to those goods and services. And this distracts us from mission and multiplication. We need a paradigm shift. What he's speaking to is the consumer age in which we live. And people are so consumer-oriented in our culture about everything that they do that they're looking at things as a product to be consumed. If they like it, They'll take part, and they, if they don't, they won't. And in the church, we sometimes fall prey to this because we become attractional in nature primarily. And it's easy for us to lose sight of what it means to make disciples and even to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. As disciples, the mission of God has to be the compelling motivation for our lives. And the mission of God is to bring glory to God and to do the work of the kingdom. So let's read, beginning in verse 1, I'll go through verse 16, and then we'll come back later in the message to verse 17 through verse 24. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, says, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Verse 9, and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Verse 16, he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. God's harvest field. First truth I want to show you about God's harvest field is that God's harvest field calls for prayer to the Lord of the harvest. It calls for prayer to the Lord of the harvest. The scripture opens with the words after this or after these things. It's a reference to what Jesus has just accomplished, but even more specifically, it's a reference to the fact that he has now set his face toward Jerusalem. He is going to make his journey to the cross. He is going to fulfill the will that God the Father sent him to fulfill. So the Lord appoints 70 of his disciples, and he sends them out two by two into every place that he was about to go. This has a parallel with when Moses appointed the 70 elders to assist him. And the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord rested upon them. They would go together to represent the Lord and also to help and to encourage one another in the mission. The sent ones were headed into largely non-Jewish territory. So they were going into Gentile areas who would not have had a framework about the Messiah in the same way that the Jews would. They would have not been anticipating things or understanding what was to come. And there was Jesus, the 12 disciples, and then the 70, who are in turn told to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out even more. The simple directive in verse 2 is pray the Lord of the harvest. Let's consider prayer generally just for a moment and then think about it specifically in the next part of the passage. What is prayer? Prayer is talking to and listening to God. Prayer is bringing our adoration to God because he's worthy. 
It's confessing our sins to him because we're unworthy. It's expressing our gratitude and our thanksgiving to God for who he is and what he's done. And then it's praying for and interceding on behalf of others and then also praying for the mission. Now, we listen to God primarily through his word. His word never leads us astray. The Spirit of God is our teacher. He is the one who has inspired the Word, and He is also the one who illuminates the Word. So as we pray to God and we bring all of these things to Him, we also are in His Word, and we're listening to what God has to say to us to guide our lives and to direct our mission for Him. Throughout the Bible, prayer is emphasized. We find Hezekiah praying to God in 2 Kings and asking for God to heal him, which he did. We find David in Psalm 61 asking God to listen to his prayer, and he did. We have the disciples in Matthew chapter 6 who could have asked God uh, for anything through the life of Jesus, but they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. We find in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul advocating for prayer for those who are in authority as well as for all people so that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives. We're instructed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we are to pray without ceasing, that we are to continue in an attitude and a spirit of prayer. And then 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that God's ears are attentive to the prayers of his people. When we pray, we are showing confidence to God that we believe in him and that our faith is in him alone. We are demonstrating confidence in his word. And when we do not pray, we are showing a lack of faith in God and a lack of belief in his word. Now, I would say that at the heart of prayer, prayer is about knowing God. We're very good in the church with cluttering up our lives with things that may or may not be pertinent to our lives or to the mission. And as a result of that, we can get distracted from the things that really matter. And at the heart of Christianity, it is about knowing God. It's about being reconciled to the one who has given us physical life. It's about having a knowledge of him who has given us spiritual life. And God is inviting us to draw closer to him, to come boldly before the throne of grace, to receive mercy in our time of need. And then prayer is not only about knowing God, prayer is about making God known. Let me say it to you another way. If we're praying rightly, our prayers will not end with our knowledge of God. Our prayers will flow into our service and obedience to God because we'll not want to keep the good news to ourselves. We'll want to share it with others. We'll want to be vigilant in this life that God has called us to. Prayer acknowledges God's sovereignty and salvation as well as our responsibility to share the gospel. So in this, prayer is both a form of and a tool for evangelism. This year, the International Mission Board is celebrating 175 years of an uninterrupted gospel witness among the nations. My friend Gordon Fort, who has been here before, who many of you might remember, said this about prayer. He said, prayer isn't just important, it's essential. Prayer is the most underutilized weapon in the Great Commission arsenal. 
It's the one thing every Christian can do in helping advance the gospel among the nations, regardless of the restrictions or the impacts resulting from COVID-19. We pray for the things that matter the most to us. So I just ask you the question, does the Lord's harvest field matter enough to you that you are praying for it? Are you motivated to pray? See, when we have compassion for the lost, we're going to be motivated to pray. In the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 9, it speaks of the compassion of Jesus when he saw the multitudes that he was moved with compassion for them. And the reason that he was moved with compassion for them is because they were weary and scattered. They were like sheep who have no shepherd. Jesus saw lost people as troubled and distressed and downcast and helpless. And we are to pray specifically for people that we know who need to know the Lord. And as the Lord gives us compassion to do that, we'll have boldness to share and we'll pray for the glory of God to be made known. God's harvest field calls for prayer to the Lord of the harvest. And then the second truth is that God's harvest field calls for workers to be sent into the harvest. Laborers to be raised up. Notice what he says in verse 2. The harvest is truly great, but the laborers or the workers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's think specifically about prayer and how it relates to asking the Lord to raise up workers and what our part in his mission is. Now, this passage, of course, has specific applications uh, to the circumstances of Jesus' own life and ministry and the ministry of his 12 disciples and then the larger circle of the 70 disciples. But I think it has an application for our lives as well. Jesus taught his disciples, and we in turn, that the harvest is plentiful. Now, this harvest field that God's word is speaking of is plentiful because it encompasses the entire world. Now, sometimes because of our own circumstances, we think that we might be the only ones left. We're like Elijah. Lord, we're, we're the last ones that are left in the whole deal. We are the remnant. Nobody wants to hear what I have to say. I'm not seeing people come to faith like I want to. Why are these people hard-headed and hard-hearted? This must be about all there is to it. Listen to what Jeff Thomas wrote about that concept. He said, so often we think of the harvest facing us as particularly barren, as a dust bowl. A few withered stalks bending in the wind with a little cluster of seeds. We are working in Egypt's seven lean years, and that attitude dominates the church's vision. How different was the prospect the Lord gave them? A vast field of golden wheat stretched out as far as the eye could see in every direction all the way to the horizon. They were faced with an immense harvest, and those were the first words of the sermon that he impressed upon them. The sheer abundance of the harvest, that they would not see the edges of the fields in which they were laboring. Now, it is true that the religious landscape has changed in the West in recent decades. If you look at the statistics, uh, we've seen a decline among faithfulness 
and also among people coming to faith. A century ago, 80% of Christians in the world lived in North America or in Europe. As compared to only 40% of Christians in the world today living on these two continents. One out of four Christians today lives in Africa, primarily sub-Saharan Africa. It is estimated that within the next decade, more than 40% of Christians will live in sub-Saharan Africa. And yet God is at work even though things are changing. Did you know that it's estimated that there are as many as 65 million people who come to faith in Jesus Christ every single year? Did you know that there are some bright spots around the world where God is at work? An area that we would not typically think of as a great movement of God is the nation of Iran. Now, we hear a lot about Iran in the news, but did you know that there's a strong movement of the gospel in that nation? There have been reports of it now for years on end, but nobody had really confirmed it. Well, there was a Netherlands-based research group that went and found out that, in fact, today in Iran, that 1.6% of the citizens are Christians, which means that there are more than 1.3 million Christians today in the nation. And not only that, but the evangelical church is growing at a rate of 19.6% a year. People are converting to Christianity in a place where evangelizing or converting is still punishable by imprisonment or death. And what that says to me is maybe we've had it too easy for too long. Maybe we've taken for granted the freedoms that we have. Maybe we've taken for granted the grace of God. Maybe we've taken for granted the resources that God has entrusted to us, and yet he's moving in powerful ways in other parts of the world. Even in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, God has been at work. David Roach wrote an article early on in the crisis entitled, Coronavirus Searches Lead Millions to Hear About Jesus. In the Philippines, a woman named Grace found herself on a website about coronavirus fear that was hosted by the organization Global Media Outreach. She said, please help me not to worry about everything as she began to communicate with the volunteer counselor. The counselor explained that only Jesus can bring lasting peace and grace came to faith in Jesus Christ. Back in the United States, a volunteer at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association chatted online with a young mother named Brittany. Brittany was worried about the virus and she was worried that it would take her life and the lives of her children. The volunteer shared the gospel and Brittany also came to faith in Christ. Three of the largest online evangelism ministries, GMO that I referenced, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and Crew account for, listen to this, 200 million gospel presentations online annually. God is at work. The harvest is plentiful. The gospel is the answer to the greatest need of every person in the world. And yet laborers workers are needed. Jesus said to them, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. We should expect opposition when light encounters darkness. Jesus told them to travel lightly. These specific commandments here are not normative commands, so to speak, to us, 
but they are an absolutely strong reminder of the principle that we cannot get distracted by the things of the world. That when we serve God and as labors are raised up, as workers are being sent out, we have to keep our priority as the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This has to be our main concern. And as we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we know that our work is not in vain. Did you know that the call to be a worker begins first in your family? The people who are the closest to you, that you love and are concerned about? Do the people who are closest to you know the Lord? Are the people who are closest to you being discipled? The call to be a worker for the Lord is lived out through the local church. Everybody who is redeemed of the Lord has spiritual gifts, and we are to be using those spiritual gifts for the Lord in service to Him. The call to be a worker for the Lord extends to our community and to our sphere of influence. Let me just ask you a question. Are are you burdened for our community? Are you broken for the lost in cross lanes? Do you care about those who are in distress and who are wandering in Kanawha County? Do you care about the people that you interact with in Putnam County who don't know Jesus Christ? You see, we have to have a compassion. When we look at the field, do we see people as in the position that they deserve to be in? It's their own doing? Or do we see them in the same circumstance that we would find ourselves in if we didn't know the Lord? And then as we work for the Lord, that call goes all the way to the ends of the earth. Are you invested in the work of the Lord to the ends of the earth through praying and giving and going? And that brings me to the third and final truth. God's harvest field calls for a message to be spoken in the harvest. Notice again, he says here in verse 9, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The lives and the words of the workers in the harvest have the purpose of proclaiming the message of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus told them to speak peace upon a house if there was a person of peace there and it would be returned to them. But he told them judgment is coming for all who reject the message. So the message of the kingdom has the effect of drawing a clear line between those who receive the message and those who reject the message. Peace comes to those who receive it. Judgment comes to those who reject it. And Jesus preached the message of the kingdom. And for us to share the gospel of the kingdom requires that we know the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel? Jesus is the gospel, the good news about his life, death, burial, and resurrection. It's the heart of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the very core of the gospel that appears over and over again in the Bible. And the reason that there's good news is because there's bad news. The bad news is that we are sinners separated from God and deserving of hell apart from faith in Christ. But the good news is that God sent his one and only son to live a perfect life and to die on the cross for our sins and to be buried in a borrowed tomb and to be raised from the dead. And the message of the gospel is this is good news, but for you to receive this good news, you must repent and turn away from your sins and you must believe and have faith in Jesus. That's the message of Christianity. 
Repent and believe. Look to Jesus as the one who is the good news himself. Philip Yancey said, human beings don't readily admit desperation. But when they do, the kingdom of heaven draws near. Let's pick back up reading in verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Watch this, verse 20. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. The disciples were sent out and they went. We don't know how long they were gone. The Bible doesn't tell us. But what the Bible tells us is that they came back with joy. They were excited about what had happened. And they said, Lord, even, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Evidently, they were successful in the mission. And then Jesus' comments take an interesting turn. He references the fall of Satan, which was like lightning from heaven. I think this is a specific reference to the original fall from heaven, as well as an ultimate reference to the absolute overwhelming victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over evil. You see, Satan fell from glorified to profane, Ezekiel 28. He fell from having access to heaven, Job chapter 1. He will fall from the earth to bondage in the bottomless pit for a thousand years in the future, Revelation 20. And his ultimate fall will be from the pit to the eternal lake of fire, also in Revelation 20. Verses 21 and 22 here point again to the sovereignty of God in revealing himself, the sovereignty of God in making himself known to us, and also the grace of God in drawing himself, uh, drawing himself to us and bringing us to faith in him. And he told them something very important. And I'm going to close with this. He told them not to rejoice in the miraculous that they would see in their ministry. And they were going to see many things as apostles and as disciples that were miraculous. But rather to rejoice because their names are written in heaven. Did you know that there is something called the book of life in heaven that is the set of names of all who will live with God forever through faith in Jesus? Did you know that there is a role in heaven that has the name of every person who will ever be saved? 
It's referred also to as the Lamb's Book of Life. And I believe that God keeps good records. And because God keeps good records, he knows the names of his own. And he has set the names of his children eternally in his book. Listen to what Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12 says. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. The de then death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So I ask you today, is your name written in the book of life? The way that your name is written in the book of life and the way that your name is secured in the book of life is by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has your name in heaven. That he has reserved a place for you. Just as Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come in again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. So you can know that your name is written in the book of life, and your home is in heaven with God if your faith is in Jesus. This is the hope of the gospel. And he says, blessed are those who see what you see and hear what you hear. Friends, I'm thankful that I've seen what I've seen and I've heard what I've heard. Because if it were not for God's work in my life through Jesus Christ, I would have remained blind spiritually and unable to hear spiritually but yet God has given me eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray I don't know where you are spiritually if you're listening to this message right now or maybe a little bit later on but God does and I have a question for you how is your soul are you at peace with God is your faith and trust in Jesus? Is your name written down and secured in heaven? Or are you separated from God without peace and without hope? If you know the Lord, you've got much to be thankful for. There's a big harvest field that God is calling us to work in. We're privileged to work in it and to make him known. We're privileged to be called his children and disciples of Jesus. But today the call of the gospel is for all who have not seen and heard as well. You say, well, pastor, how can I know for sure that my soul is right with God? The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. That's the promise from Scripture. Today is a day of salvation. Would you trust in Him and believe in Him as your only and as your eternal hope? You say, Jesus, I need you. I need forgiveness of my sins. And I want to receive the gift of everlasting life. God, you've got the words of life. 
So we come to you. Father, I pray for uh, this body of Christ where we serve together and as we work in the harvest field together. I thank you for the unity that you have uh, secured and protected in our midst. Uh, Lord, we're challenged right now. We're, we're struggling a little bit if we'd be honest about it. But our hope and our trust is in you. And we believe that you're going to see us through. So, Lord, deepen our faith. Strengthen our resolve. Increase our faithfulness, even in the midst of all of this, that we would serve you in the way that you've called us to, to make Jesus known. And I pray that we'd not be caught up in uh, the consumer mindset where we're just peddling a religious product, where we're vendors of a religious good, but that we are pointing people to their eternal hope and that they would know Christ through it. So we give this time of close and response over to you and ask you to move in hearts as you see fit. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.